Good evening. Welcome to Bible study. Glad to see you all here tonight. We're going to look at Deuteronomy 25 tonight. Let's go before the Lord. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this Bible study. Thank you for those who are here gathered, those who are watching online, and who will listen online. Bless our time of your word tonight. Strengthen us, encourage us, refresh us, Lord. Give us wisdom by your spirit. Help us to understand your truth, your word tonight. So that we may know you more. So that we may know how to live before you and to live before a watching world as witnesses of yours. In Christ's name, amen. So Deuteronomy 25 deals with laws concerning uh, justice, marriage, and business. That's basically what it's split uh, into. Uh, the first part deals with administrating justice and how that should look. And also how to deal with widows and honesty in business, which um, we're going to look at also uh, about equal weights and measures. <coughs> So as we always do, we're going to look at this by section. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 3 first, and then look at the fourth verse, and then go from there. So it says here, If there is a dispute between men, and they come into court, and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. Forty stripes may be given him, but not more, lest if one should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother be degraded in your sight. I don't know about you, but when I was reading that, a few thoughts, observations came to my mind. First of all, there is uh, times where people have disputes. Uh, where, and a, a dispute can be a fight, an argument, or something that leads to murder, or some type of crime committed against another person. Uh, that does happen because we're we're all fallen, and as sinners, we're going to have disputes. <clears throat> now, if, this, if the dispute is brought before court, the judges judge them. So, what this shows us the precedent that some things can't be arbitrated between just the two people; they have to have a neutral party involved. Just as in our court system, if there's a dispute between two people or two parties, they usually go before what? A court. Court system. And that's where we, again, always have to remind us, this is where the basis of our laws come from. In our nation, they come from British common law, which came from the Bible. So this is why we have courts and court systems. In order to uh, adjudicate uh, disputes, whether that dispute is a divorce proceedings, whether it's a property dispute or anything uh, like that, we take it before a judge. And, and why is that? Because uh, judges are supposed to be impartial. In other words, they're not to show favoritism. And the judge is the one who decides what happens, not the two people or not the disputing parties. Because if the disputing parties do it, then <laughs> just imagine how chaotic that would be if we didn't if we didn't couldn't take things to court. Now there's some matters that can't be settled between two people without having to do that. But this is speaking of disputes that rise to that. So they have to be taken before a judge. And it says the judge may judge them. 
It says, and they justify the righteous or acquit the righteous or the innocent and condemn the guilty. This is how all court systems should work. You condemn the guilty. You condemn the wicked. But you justify or acquit the righteous. Now, we don't live in a perfect criminal justice system. But for the most part, it works out this way. You have every now and then you see cases about people who are in jail for 30 years or, you know, whatever, 40 years. And, you know, for a crime they didn't commit uh, at the time when it was adjudicated. Sometimes it was for different reasons. But when those people are let out, in most, most, if not all cases, those people are paid some type of restitution. That's biblical justice, you know, for being wrongly in prison. That's how you, that's the only way you can make that right. You can't give them their, their years back that they missed. But there is some type of restitution that does take place, usually financial. Uh, so that's one way of making that right. In this case, as it is in our nation, especially, and I'm going to talk about this in a second. This is the simple responsibility of all government and courts is to do two things. Justify the righteous and condemn the guilty. That is the responsibility of every governmental system. To acquit the innocent and to punish the guilty. We see in our uh, nation especially where the guilty are not punished. And they're not punished swiftly. You hear all the time about people who commit a crime, particularly a felony crime, and they're able to post bond. And while they're out on bond, guess what a lot of them do? They commit more crimes. When they should have never been out in the first place. Sometimes they commit multiple crimes. Sometimes the crimes they were... Uh, let out a bond for more violent crimes, attempted murder, or even murder. Whether it's aggravated murder, or whatever the case may be. They're out of jail, waiting on trial, but while they're out of jail, guess what they do? Sometimes they commit more crimes. That's not biblically just. Because those people should be in jail until their trial, and then the judge uh, decides to keep them in for a longer time. But we living in a criminal justice system where you have uh, activist judges and activist prosecutors and DAs uh, who go too soft on criminals. But who suffers in those cases? The citizens do. Paul says here in Romans 13 about the role of government. Romans 13 and 4, this is what Paul says. This is what our government and all governments that have been established are supposed to do. So let's look at De Deuteronomy 13, I'm sorry, Romans 13 and 4. And this is uh, piggybacking on this passage that we're reading in Deuteronomy about, again, justifying the righteous and condemning the wicked. So what's the job of government? Federal government, state government, local government. Okay. Let's look at context. I'm going to start back at the first verse. So we're going to look at Romans 13 and 1. So Paul is talking about the government. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. So. All government authorities exist have been instituted by God. And when we're talking about government authority, we're talking about law enforcement, uh, positions of leadership. They all have been uh, instituted by God. And then sometimes God gives good authorities as a blessing, and sometimes bad authorities as a curse. So he says here, but there is no authority except from who? God. So all authority in government comes from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So who established government? God did. 
Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Okay? For he, government, rulers, is God's minister. Verse 3 says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to what? Bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then what? Do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he, who is the he, that is the governing authorities, the rulers, is God's minister, God's servant. For what? Good. Okay? But if you do evil, you should be what? Afraid. You should fear. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister. He meaning, of course, authority. An avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So what is the job of government? The job of government is to punish evil. Not to excuse evil. Not to empathize with evil. Not to be sympathetic toward evil. But to do what? Punish evil. Punishment of evil is always a deterrent. It serves as that. That's how we as believers are to look at uh, the role of government. And this is what God is uh, commanding Israel. The dispute happens. The judges judge them. They justify the righteous. They condemn the wicked. That's what government's supposed to do. Not to let the wicked off the hook. Not to punish the righteous. In our nation, we have righteous people who are punished by governing authorities because they don't uh, adhere to certain uh, ideologies. And it's going to be like that increasingly more and more. The government is supposed to protect the righteous. Not punish the righteous. And Paul says it there in, in Romans 13. And, and that's the overall principle as you expand this, this law out here in Deuteronomy. They're instituted by God. And if you resist authority, guess what? You bear his wrath. Think about. We talked about this for here. You know, you have uh, police shootings that happen, right? Police have to shoot suspects. Nine times out of ten, there are very few cases where the suspect was not aggressive with law enforcement. Very few. Okay? In the majority of those police shootings, what is the suspect doing? Resisting authority. Resisting arrest. That's what they're doing. They're putting their lives in, in peril by resisting arrest, resisting authority. And when you're resisting that authority, you're resisting God. Paul says that. Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. So you're resisting God when you're resisting authority, the governmental authorities. Because who established those authorities? God did. So it, it goes bigger than just that police officer or that judge or that uh, government official. It, is, it goes bigger than that. You're sinning against the God who appointed authorities as an authority figure, who appointed by the governmental officials as an authority figure. You're resisting God. And so... You see all those things that happen. You see people resisting arrest. They're going to incur the wrath of government. And you can have both of those discussions. Should the police have used excessive force? In some cases, no. But you can also have the discussion, should that person have resisted arrest? That too is wrong. 
But our society only takes one side. They don't take both. They don't look at both sides. Those two things can be right or wrong at the same time. Two things can be wrong. You say, okay, they shouldn't have used excessive force. But also you can say that person shouldn't have resisted arrest. But you rarely hear that second thing, that second point being made. But you always hear the first point. And what does that do to people? That that gives people put, put puts in people's mind that it's okay to resist authority. But in a just justice system, those who do wrong are to be punished. You know, they got those young men down there in um, Tallapoosa County jail that did that uh, shooting at that party. Of course, more details are coming out uh, now. I think three of them, the, the three older ones, the prosecutors pushing for uh, no bail, you know, at all. They think yeah, that shouldn't even be a consideration. But it is. That shouldn't even be a consideration, uh, having bail. And I, in, in a justice system like this, if a person commits murder, they don't have the opportunity for bail. That shouldn't even be a consideration. Because when you do that, you're, you're, you're not punishing the wicked as they should be punished. And then when you think about uh, capital punishment, some people sit on death row for 30 years. 40 years. Some, of, some people die on death row before their execution date. That's not right to the families. That's not bringing justice to those families. Now, this is not, a, you know, people. some people for or against death penalty. Uh, biblically, I'm for it. Um, but that's a second secondary issue. But my point is, is that when someone is on death row, their date of execution should be swift. And to me, what that does, that it's, it's a deterrent against committing those type of crimes. But if you know that you're going to live on the state's dime for 30 years, you're still going to get three hots in the cot. While appeals will just keep going and going and going and going and going and going and going. And then the last minute, your attorneys try to get a stay of execution from the governor of the state. Sometimes that happens, then sometimes it doesn't. And that family is still not getting the justice, the retributive, retributive rather justice that they deserve. How is that fair to the family of the victim? It's not. It's not just. So when we're looking at that, our, our, our nation especially is not swift at punishing the wicked. And what that does is send incentive to other criminals that, hey, I can just sit in jail and get fed. I mean, I used to do ministry down at Calhoun County Jail some years ago, about five, six, seven years ago, like 2015, 2013, when Chaplain Green was down there. I used to go down there, me and Bob, used to go down there and do Bible study, and I used to go minister to the inmates. You know, there's some people who want to be in jail. There's some people who actually commit little petty crimes to be in jail because they know they get three hots in a cot. That's what we used to call it, three hot meals and, and a place to sleep base. That's what, what that means. Uh, they, they would rather just be in jail than be out on the streets because they know they got three squares. They ain't got to work. They, they're, they're living on the, the in, our, in our case, the county's dying. If it was much more harsher, and I don't mean harsher in an inhumane way, they won't want to go to jail. I think about Kilby Prison down there in Montgomery. Uh, well, we, we were in school. Kilby used to have a work farm out behind the prison. Where they, the prisoners grew gardens. They grew their own vegetables. They grew their own food. And they had chain gangs. You know what I... Well, <laughs> they had chain gangs. I remember when this happened. So they had some... Some... Uh, advocate, uh, I'm sorry, some uh, activist lawyers on behalf of prison saying that chain gangs was cruel and unusual punishment and having them to work out there in the garden, making their, uh, you know, 
learn how to do all that stuff was cruel and unusual punishment and it was of course racist like everything else is wink wink but they were saying that chain gangs were racist and cruel and unusual punishment and that having them out there working in the sun and stuff like that was cruel and unusual punishment so guess what they did they cut them out but also guess what happened crime inside of the prison walls went up because the only place they were restricted to going to was the prison yard that was it giving them a sense of pride and dignity and working hey could have been ditch digging but you're digging you're doing something productive and the accommodations in prison you'd be surprised what they have they got cable TV they got lounges and they're not supposed to have contraband they're not supposed to have cell phones but they still get into prison anyway but some of them living better than than, than, than some people around here in West Anderson are so that incentive to not commit crimes is not there because the wicked are not being punished as they should so we see this law right here we see what happens when you don't practice this type of justice biblical justice it creates chaos in our society and it creates chaos in the criminal justice system so what happens to the wicked man here it says then it shall be if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, that means if, if he's found guilty, uh, basically. The judge will cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence. According to his guilt, with a certain number of blows. Now, this is basically the, the uh, you know, you hear the axiom, the punishment fits the crime. The strikes were in proportion to his offense. This is how biblical justice is supposed to work. The punishment must fit the crime. What should be the punishment for the crime of murder? And murder, now, murdering and manslaughter, you know, murder uh, requires intent. The person sets out to do it. So you have to, you know, we have to understand that murder, murdering somebody versus killing them is different. Uh, killing someone doesn't um, doesn't mean uh, intent. Like manslaughter, you're wrestling with somebody, you know, gun goes off. You don't like mean to kill them. But murder means premed, murder basically requires premeditation. So what should be the punishment for murder? In, in proportion to their crime, it should be the death penalty. Because you've taken a life. Uh, Genesis 9 says that. Yep. That's, that's in, I think Genesis 9 and 5. Because that person is the image bearer of God. That's proportionate justice. That's proportionate justice. That's the way it should look. But in some cases you got people who murdered someone serving less time than someone who committed armed robbery. Armed robbery is bad too. That's a that's a class A felony. I, I believe that people who, who commit the crime of rape should receive the death penalty. Because you're a man, that's, that's a very heinous, egregious crime. So the punishment should fit the crime. That's what this, this scripture is uh, talking about. It's talking about basically proportionate Justice, the number of strikes in proportion to their offense. Now, this punishment, whatever the punishment is, should not be abusive because it says here, 40 blows he may give him and no more. So that's basically saying uh, you're preventing the guilty man from being uh, degraded or uh, abused. You're leaving room for restoration. Okay, according to the person who received a uh, type of punishment. So, justice should be, punishment should be, again, proportionate to the guilt, proportionate to the crime, the 
Punishment fits the crime. It's like in a school setting. A student that gets in a fight with another student, they may get suspended for three days. A student that trips another student up in the hallway, causing them to fall and spill all their books on the floor, may get one day ISD or something like that. You know, you, you don't get that person a, a day suspension, you know, for the same way a, a person who gets in the fight gets. So it's a student who calls in a bomb threat to a school, they can get expelled. That's proportionate justice. So we do practice that in some parts, but again, we have activists out there who don't want criminal. You have people out there advocating for the abolishment of prisons. Yes, you do. They're advocating for it. The abolishment of prisons. Seriously. You have activists, uh, judges and activist lawyers who are advocating for the abolishment of prisons. They call it the prison industrial complex or mass incarceration, which is a myth. Why are people incarcerated? Because they do what? Commit crimes. They commit crimes, and, and I always say this, my my. My folks used to tell me this. If you don't want to do the time, don't do the crime. That's just the bottom line. It's <laughs> a good rhyme right there. If you don't want to do the time, don't do the crime. That's just the bottom line. Just don't do the crime. Don't sell drugs. Don't abuse drugs. Don't purchase a, a well, not necessarily purchase. Don't, don't go uh, with the handgun into a store trying to steal money. Don't go into an establishment and start shooting into the crowd. Do you all know the um, young man that shot up the movie theater? They had the back, the, uh, when the dark, I think it was the dark night that came out. That was almost 10 years ago. That young man still hasn't been sentenced yet. Hmm? I think it was 12 people that were killed in that movie theater. He hadn't been sentenced yet. He hadn't had a trial yet. Why? All these appeals and that they're talking about his health and all these different things. That man should should have already had a needle put in him. That's the punishment fitting the crime. So that's biblical justice. And God is setting this for Israel and the, the principle is for us. That is how our that's how ours should be, but it is definitely far from it. So again, the forty stripes was um to not go overboard. You know, we seem to have justice in the day that considers it more passionate and kind than God Himself. <laughs> That's the way our criminal justice system is. It's more compassionate and more kind than God himself. And we can't say that we live in a, a more just and safe society. Why? Because criminals are not being punished. We don't live in a safe society because criminals are not being punished. So the 40 blows... Um, was showing that there is a such thing as excessive punishment. God agrees with that. So the 40 blows was, again, it was intended to prevent excessive punishment. Now, also that person, the justice had to be administered in the presence of a judge. Why was that? To make sure that the punishment was not excessive. So the man had to lay down. I can't imagine that. And having to take those 40 strikes, that was humiliating and painful, too. I mean, just, woof. Just imagine if you had to get your punish. You know, hey, I got called to the principal's office a few times. <laughs> when I was in uh, elementary school, especially. In Dr. Ivy's uh, office. And uh, he had to lay the uh, it to me a few times. Yeah, I did. Your pastor was like that. And when I was in eighth grade. Dr. Evans, uh, our principal. No, Mr. Bowers was the assistant principal. He was like the enforcer. We call him a bulldog. He had those, he had those droopy jaws. 
Mr. Bauer, I, I, I told Fred about Mr. Bowers uh, about a month or so ago. He's still alive. Too. He's like 78, 79 years old. But Mr. Bowers, boy, his voice like, Dr. Evans had this deep, like, yes. And Mr. Bowers won't be like this tall. But man, when he came down that hallway, I, you, this shows how much times have changed. If you hear his voice come down the hallway, you straighten up, I mean, down the hallway, you straighten up in the classroom. Because you heard Mr. Bowles' voice and you didn't know whether he was going to pop up in your room or not. Or if he did pop up in your room, everybody stood up straight. That's the way we respected our administrators. You know, kids don't do that now. They'll be laughing and joking. Yeah, I mean, seriously, exactly. Boy, Mr. Bowles, come down that hallway, you hear that voice? I mean, you just straighten up in your, in your seat. Why? Because there was that respect there and this beating in front of that judge was a way of respecting that judge's authority and the judge make sure that justice was uh, adjudicated uh, correctly now in 2nd Corinthians 11 Paul talks about um, when he was giving his, his testimony his apostolic uh, credentials he said in 2 Corinthians 11 24, uh, from the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. That means 39 stripes. So Paul's beaten by the Jews, Jewish authority, uh, 39 blows on five different occasions. Man, I can only imagine how Paul's back looked. Now, Paul didn't receive 40 blows as is according with this passage that we see here. Uh, and the reason why was because as a common practice, the Jews only allowed 39 blows to be administered. They wanted one less than what was deemed excessive. So this was to show, basically them showing mercy to the one who was punished. And the reason why Paul was punished is only because he was spreading the gospel. He didn't really do anything wrong to deserve those stripes. But they wanted to keep the law, so they only gave 39 uh, stripes. And who else was given stripes? Jesus, on the uh, whipping post by Roman soldiers. He was tied to a post with his back uh, naked. And he received stripes. That's why uh, Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, by his stripes, we were healed. When he's talking about those stripes, he's talking about the stripes that he received uh, at the hands of those Roman soldiers. Those stripes represented him bearing our sins in his body. So Christ himself, this shows us Christ was treated as if he was a criminal. Although he was not a criminal, he did not commit any crimes worthy of stripes. Christ was guilty of nothing at all. He was totally innocent. The scripture says in him was no sin and no guile was found in his mouth. He didn't even talk sinful. So Christ receiving those stripes, he received them as an innocent man because Christ was not guilty of any crime at all. He was not a criminal. But yet, he was treated like one. When he had those three trials uh, the night before he was crucified, three false trials where false witnesses uh, came up against him. And he received those stripes by those Roman soldiers. Though he was totally innocent. So these 40 stripes were uh, enough. In fact, in Jesus' day, I, I remember when I, I preached on this some years ago when I was talking about the crucifixion. Um, some people on the whipping post died after the first blow because of the shock 
that it brought to their bodies and their heart, like the the shock from that pain. Some people died on the first whip. But Christ endured all he is for us. And we praise the Lord uh, for that, that he did. But he was the, 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 the big point in that is that uh, Christ was beaten as a criminal, as someone who had done wrong when he had not. And that's not righteous justice. Then verse 4 says, you should not muzzle an ox when it is treading out uh, the grain. This is simply uh, treating animals right. That's basically what this means. Even an animal was entitled to food, you know, while it worked. Okay. Now, Paul applied this principle uh, to the work of uh, evangelism and uh, disciple making. Think of 1 Corinthians 9. In 1 Corinthians 9, uh, Paul is, is saying um, that you should not muzzle the ox that treads out uh, the grain. He says, yeah, for what is written in the law of Moses, you should not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about, or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For your sakes, no doubt, this is written that he who plows should plow in hope and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. So Paul was using this principle from this passage right here in Deuteronomy in the context of um, the ministers being supported by the people he ministers to. So that's why churches take care of their pastors. This is one of the principles that that, that comes from. So Paul used this principle about the treatment of animals, not comparing ministers to animals, but just the principle in this passage is the, the church taking care of the ministers who are ministering to it. So that's the principle there in that law. Then he goes to uh, leverage marriage. Uh, the word leverage is not in your Bible, but this uh, is concerning Leverate marriage and the word leverate l-e-v-i-r-a-t-e the root word of that is lever l-e-v-i-r which in latin means brother-in-law which is basically concerning brother-in-law marriage so it says here if a brother if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and he has no son the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger her husband's brother shall go in to her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name uh, may not be blotted out of Israel. If a man does not wish to take his wife, brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Try to sound like a, a, a wife would sound. Everybody should have one of the ladies to read that. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists saying, I do not wish to take her. Then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. In the name of his, his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. <laughs> okay. I had to animate that a little bit. <laughs> okay. I did my best impression of a lady. All right. So the basic principle of this is the, the marriage obligation of surviving brothers. Now, in ancient Israel, it was seen as a great tragedy, huge tragedy for a man to die without leaving descendants. Okay, so when you're looking at this law, we have to put ourselves in that context. Okay, it was a, a great tragedy, a great insult, 
for a man to die with no descendants, to carry on his name, because names were very important in antiquity. And so with that context in mind, we can see why this law is. So if a man couldn't give his family inheritance in anyone, that was, a, that was an insult to that man because the obligation of the man was to take care of his family and make sure that his family had some type of inheritance. Okay? That's why it says if a man dies and has no son, it was the responsibility of one of his brothers, assuming that he had brothers. You know, people had families back then. Okay, so it was the responsibility of one of his brothers to take his widow as a wife and perform the duty of the husband's uh, brother to her. So this was, again, leveret marriage. And it wasn't procured to Israel. Uh, one commentator here says that it was practiced among the Hittites and the Assyrians and the other countries in India, Africa, and South America. So this wasn't just something unique to Israel. This was practiced by other uh, nations, and it's still being practiced until this day in certain cultures. Now, we would see that as, like, grossed out. You know, our contemporary Western culture wouldn't dare do anything like that, and I don't blame them. But to them, especially in ancient times, it was important to be able to have uh, this happen. Now, the other principle here, the purpose was protection for the widow. That was one of the other purposes for this was to protect uh, the widow. Okay? So, and if the brother-in-law was also married, he still had to marry her. So this is where uh, polygamy was allowed. But this does not in any way approve of polygamy. So we have to say that this is ancient times. This is in that context. Okay? So the emphasis was placed on family. Okay? As well as the desire to preserve the family line. This was very important in this context. We've lost that in our culture especially. By preserving family. Now, you know, some families that are rich families, you know, they want to preserve the family name. Like, you know, think about great family names like the Kennedy family or the Rockefellers or the Bush family or the Carnegie family or, you know, all these different family names where the children are named after the great-grandfather or the great-great-grandfather or whatever. You know, they believe in, in, in passing, passing that down. I had a young man I was doing an insurance policy for a couple of weeks ago, and he is a fourth. He's a fourth. He's named after his great-grandfather. So he had the, he's the fourth. His father was the third. His grandfather was the second, you know, and his great-grandfather, you know, was the, the progeny, the, the, the original one. And he's a fourth, and he says when he has a son, he's going to name him the fifth. He has some families that do that. Hey, George Foreman did it with a lot of his sons. <laughs> he gave all his sons, George. Exactly. All, all of them uh, are named after him, uh, the boxer, uh, former boxer, uh, George Foreman. But anyway, this practice was basically to protect widows and also to um, extend the family name. So that's the overall principle of, of this. Now, if the brother refused again, to take this responsibility as we as I dramatically read, they were to be called to open shame by the widow. They were to be called to open shame. And then the shame was <laughs> compounded by him having his sandal removed and the widow spitting in his face. That was to shame him even more for not wanting to to do that. So I can imagine it. Having his sandal taken off, that was one insult. Do you know that in, in Middle Eastern culture, throwing your sandal at one is a sign of insult? I remember it was a famous uh, video of George H.W., no, George W. Bush. He was speaking to a crowd over somewhere in the Middle East and a man took off his sandal and threw it at him. I mean, 
George Bush did a good duck, boy. He ducked that joke was good. He was like, you know. <laughs> but that was a sign of insult. That was a way to insult him. You know, we were looking like, man, he took off his shoe and threw it at him. But again, we have to understand context. In that context, if you take off your sign and throw it at someone, that's a sign of insult. In this context, taking off a man's sandal and then spitting. Man, in his face, hocking a loogie on him like that, that was insulting him. So, hey, I always said this, uh, the Bible protects women. God wants women to be protected. Christianity is best for women. The widow was one of the special classes of people in Israel who had to be taken care of. And this is because in, uh, in a lot of ancient cultures, uh, Lot, a lot of widows were left destitute. They were not able to take care of themselves. You know, Paul talked about this. I think it's in 1 Timothy 5. He talked about to care for widows, those who were truly widows, widows indeed. Widows indeed were widows who, when their husband died, they had no family to take care of them. And there was the responsibility of, guess who? The church. It's the responsibility of the church to take care of True widows. Now, widows had families. Let's look at that right quick. I think it's First Timothy 5. And I, I thought about something as I was saying that. In our day, people put widows in nursing homes. Okay. First um, Timothy 5. So he's giving instructions to the church. So what, what Paul's doing in this section here is giving qualifications, you know, for that must be met for a widow to be uh, to be financially supported from the church. Man, how much has the church abdicated its responsibility in taking care of widows that are Part of the church. Widows indeed. Now. He says let a widow be enrolled. If she is not less than 60. Years of age. Having been the wife of one husband. And having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children. I'm sorry. Has shown hospitality. Has washed the feet of the saints. Has cared for the afflicted. And has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, and this is what was going on in this church. Uh, going about from house to house and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I will have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their household, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may uh, care for those who are truly widows. Okay? So, a few things here as we tie this into what we looked at, looked at here in Deuteronomy. First thing is that those who are uh, widows ought to be taken care of by the church if they're of a certain age. And then the younger widows, apparently in the churches, uh, primarily in Ephesus, that's what uh, Timothy was pastor. Uh, they had problems with the younger widows uh, doing what young ladies would do in some cases, you know, who are who are without husbands. Okay. Uh, being busybodies and all those things, straying away from the faith, as some of them did. Um, so he encouraged them to do what? To get married again and have children in order to keep them from doing that and tend to their own homes instead of to the homes of other people. And then, verse 16, he transitions back to uh, those who have uh, relatives. 
if any believing woman who has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Those who are truly widows, again, are those who don't have a family to take care of them. So this is the way and the model of the church. The church is to care for those who are truly widows. We're not to put them up in nursing homes. Now, th th these are those, as Paul said, those who are what? Part of the church, who are serving in the church, who are doing good works. Okay, not just any widow out there, you know, on, on the street, but those uh, who are widows in the church and don't have any family, the church is supposed to take care of them, not leave them destitute. Because, again, in these ancient societies, widows were among the most vulnerable uh, people. And God wanted Israel to take care of them. So this is something else to think about with this leverage marriage. Verses 11 through 12 is uh, kind of interesting. Uh, I'm not going to spend too much time on that. Uh, I'm going to get to equal weights and measures here. But 11 and 12, uh, when men fight with one another and the wife of one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of him who is beating him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the private parts, huh? then you shall cut off her hand. Your eyes shall have... Yeah, I shall have no pity. So in other words, ladies, stay out of men's fights, okay? <laughs> oh, boy. So, friend, if you see me fighting another man, just stay to the side. Let us, let us, uh, you know, don't, don't try to grab me and stop it. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. So that's all I have to say about that. That's 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 pretty much it. Uh, ladies, let, let the men hash it out themselves, I guess. So, all right. What I really want to get to is verse uh, thirteen and uh, thirteen through sixteen. You shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large one and a small one. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measure, a large and a small. A full and fair weight you shall have. A full and fair measure you shall have that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly are an abomination to the Lord your God. Wow. This is speaking of dishonesty, uh, unequal weights and measures. This is uh, being just in how we deal with people. So, because what will happen, you know, a dishonest person could use one set of weights and measures for selling and another for buying. That's what this was about in order to buy more goods. So the Bible tells us to be to be just in our business dealings with people. We must have equal weights and measures, not unequal weights and measures. OK, we have to deal justly and fairly with people when it comes to that. OK. I think about it in the context of uh, when you go grocery shopping, right? Y'all know about package shrinkage that's taking place? Where stores, the packages are getting smaller, but the prices are the same or even higher for a lot of different items. Although that's a business decision, it's still unequal weights and measures in a way because you're shrinking. Just think about this. You're shrinking the size and quantity of products, but at the same time, you're raising the prices. You're doing two unjust things. Now, it's okay to shrink, but, you know, theoretically, in theory, if you shrink the size of the product, you should also do what? Lower the price. Shrink the price. But a lot of companies don't do that. They're not practicing integrity. So this is this talks about the temptation to cheat in business, in business deals, by reducing or enlarging measures to your own advantage. And this afflicts a lot of people, especially the poor. Proverbs 16 and 11 talks about this, that no one may tinker with the balances and scales because God owns them 
and establishes the definition of honest instrument. So it, it is God who establishes that. That's Proverbs 16 and 11. So this is how we should deal with each other business-wise. But of course our companies don't do that, do they? They don't deal justly uh, with equal weights and measures. So Proverbs 16 and 11 says, uh, I, I did a paraphrase of it because I remember that verse. A just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. So any type of transactions should be fair. Any type of business transaction should be fair. That makes for a just society. Practicing integrity, having integrity in business. As Christians, we must make sure that we are that way uh, with people. So not using false weights, but using true weights, being true, having integrity in our business affairs. So you see these laws, they protect people. They keep people from being uh, physically harmed in case of uh, the punishment for crimes. It protects also widows from being harmed by being left alone and destitute. It also protects the wife uh, dealing with two men uh, fighting with each other, so to speak. And also protects people from financial harm in having fair business dealings. This shows us overall that when we follow God's commands, people won't be harmed unjustly. And those who will be protected the most are always women, children, and widows. Widows are women too, but it's a special class of women. Women will always be protected. Children will always be protected. Widows will always be protected. When we follow God's commands. And also, society will be protected. How will society be protected? By punishing the wicked. When the wicked are punished, society is protected. Because again, the wicked won't go out there and commit more crimes. You just turn on the news. I know a lot of us don't watch the news anymore. I know I, I you know the only news I watch is in the morning getting ready for work when uh Fox Six is on. That's like literally the only time I watch the news. And I scroll through my Twitter feed and see what's going on too. But other than that, I don't sit up and watch the news anymore. But it was two people shot in Birmingham. Uh well, it was one lady that was killed and uh, another person was shot uh, overnight last night. I'm like, man, at a service station. And they were targeted. And nine times out of ten, the people that had the gun weren't supposed to have it. That party in uh, Dayville, they said it was eight, how many shots? 89? They picked up 89 shell cases in that party. Six, seven handguns fired. One of them was modified to sound like a machine gun. When people like that are left to go back out on the streets, the community is not safe. When we practice biblical justice, communities are safe. People are safe. You know, we always talk about the old days, right, where you could leave your front door unlocked. That was actually true. <laughs> I mean, you didn't have to lock your front doors. Windows, I mean, you, you really, you literally did not have to do that. You didn't have to lock your, lock your front doors in the neighborhood I grew up in. And we also didn't do it. Everybody looked after everybody. We didn't have criminals roaming up and down our streets. They got turned in. They had the police called on them. Exactly. So when we 
obey God's commands and the principles that are in God's laws, communities are safe, women are safe, widows are safe, and children are safe. And that's overall what we see in these laws if we follow them. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the principles that we see in Scripture. Help us, Lord, as believers here at our church, just to start locally in our homes and teaching these laws to our children, to our family members, and to live them out in public. And, Lord, as we do this, we, we, we show people your laws, your precepts, and how they are good for human flourishing. Lord, thank you for our time in your word. Thank you for the stripes that Christ bore on his way to the cross on our behalf. Placing our sins on him and his body. Thank you, Lord, for the stripes that he endured for us. By his stripes, we are healed from our sins and the death that it brings. In Christ's name I pray, amen.